Hi, and welcome to the Breastfeeding Medicine Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dr. Ann Eglash. I'm a clinical professor in the Department of Family Medicine at the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health. I'm also a board-certified lactation consultant and a co-founder of the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. And I'm Karen Bodnar. I am an assistant professor of pediatrics at Harbor UCLA Medical Center and a general pediatrician. I'm also a board-certified lactation consultant. And this podcast is sponsored by the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. Just so you know, the content of our podcasts does not necessarily reflect official policies or protocols of the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine. Are you ready to go? Hi, Karen. How's it going? Good. How are you, Anne? Good, good. Happy happy late spring. I'm so glad to have some nice weather out here in good old cloudy Wisconsin. Nice. Yeah. So let's start with a topic that you have, which is on physicians and breastfeeding. Right. So I I wanted to talk about a recent article from February of 2013 from uh, the Journal of Breastfeeding Medicine, which was titled, Personal Breastfeeding Behavior of Physician Mothers is Associated with Their Clinical Breastfeeding Advocacy. And that's by Miriam Satari. Um, who is actually an internal medicine doctor at the University of Florida. And she had done some previous um, research that had shown that physicians were actually at high risk of premature breastfeeding cessation. And so she did this follow-up study, which was talking about how um, the physician mother's breastfeeding rates were connected with their advocacy behavior um, in regards to breastfeeding. And so... In this study, she interviewed 80 physician mothers, um, primarily at the University of Florida College of Medicine in Gainesville, Florida, um, using a questionnaire. And those 80 mothers had 152 children, and they were able to successfully initiate breastfeeding for 97% of those infants. And so they had a really high rate of initiation. And the maternal goal for duration of breastfeeding had been 12 months or more for 57% of the infants. However, she said only 34% of the children were still actually being breastfed at 12 months. And not surprisingly, um, she found that 43% of the physician mothers said that breastfeeding cessation was due to the demands of work that not enough um, time for pumping or inadequate space to do it um, and just the demands and long hours of their jobs. And then she further found that moms who reported actively promoting breastfeeding among their female patients and house staff had significantly longer um, personal breastfeeding duration compared with the mothers who denied actively promoting breastfeeding. So um, when you delve into the study a little bit, I thought it was really interesting. There um, were uh, a wide range of ages of mothers. So um, while the majority were younger, they were from 26 to 60-year-old moms with a mean age of 38. And um, about 30% were still in training. The remainder had completed their training. And they reported that only about 30% had had breastfeeding education during residency and even fewer, about 20%, had had breastfeeding-related education in medical school. 
Um, they also noted a, a common factor, which is related to um, breastfeeding, which is maternity leave, was about nine and a half weeks on average, with about um, a little less than seven weeks of that being paid maternity leave. What specialty were these doctors? Um, I think that, so there was a wide range of specialties from anesthesia to dermatology, all the primary care specialties, um, pathology, um, the primaries were um, internal medicine, peds, OB, family, there were um, radiologists, there was one radiation oncologist, um, psychiatrist, and I think partly because it's one of the bigger departments at University of Florida, the most were from internal medicine, about 46%, with 20% being in pediatrics, um, and then all of the others were 6% or lower. Um, and the, the results among the different um, physician groups were not so different in terms of, of their duration. They, she found that of the 152 children, 114 were um, breastfed exclusively from birth, and 33 were combination fed, with actually 20 of the infants started life combination fed and then were able to wean their supplementation and become exclusively breastfed. Hmm. Um, and then the continuation rates were 69% of the babies were still breastfed at six months, um, at least in part, and 34% at 12 months, with a mean duration of breastfeeding of just over nine months. Interesting. So okay. In general, um, I think that that this group of physicians had um, probably higher than, well, they definitely had higher than average in this area um, of the United States. And so she went on to discuss the advocacy efforts of the physicians, and they were asked qualitatively, you know, what sort of things they did in terms of talking to their patients or their residents or supporting the establishment of breastfeeding spaces, all sorts of um, open-ended questions. And she found that physicians that endorsed um, breastfeeding advocacy had, on average, four months longer duration than the physicians who reported not actively promoting breastfeeding. And this was not just true of the primary care specialists, but um, also those in other um, specialists like anesthesiology and psychiatry. And not surprisingly to me, one of the main reasons for not wanting to advocate um, breastfeeding among patients and health staff were avoidance of, and it's a quote, being judgmental, putting pressure on other mothers, or making mothers feel guilty. And she notes that many physician mothers identified feeling pressure, guilt, or being judged when they had to start supplementation um, for a formula for whatever reason. And I find that when I'm talking to other physicians, um, concern about causing guilt in um, mothers is one of the main reasons that people um, do not advocate. And in the conclusions of the study, I thought very interestingly, she tied this into um, some previous research that had been done that showed that physicians who had other healthy behaviors um, were more likely to participate in preventative counseling practices, so things not relating to breastfeeding. People had a positive association um, with certain health practices were more likely to advocate for them in their patient population. Huh. And this is a, a cross-sectional study, so um, it's not 
We're not able to determine causality. We can't say whether these moms breastfed longer because they had strong intention and that's why they're advocates or whether they had really positive breastfeeding experiences and thus they felt more comfortable advocating. But I think that the, the study is really interesting and it does show that there is a, this association between moms who breastfeed longer and advocacy, which is really important because other studies have shown us that patients who believe their physicians strongly support breastfeeding are more likely to breastfeed longer. Right. Absolutely. I mean, that's, boy, even the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force says that, that have that having a supportive uh, physician or healthcare provider um, increases initiation and duration of breastfeeding among, among patients. So from my perspective, as somebody who is in academics and, you know, trying to support the residents who I think struggle more than almost anybody, I, I remember reading Allison Stubbe in her podcast had written a wonderful blog about her experiences trying to maintain lactation while she was a resident. And um, it really reminds me of the importance of supporting my residents and making sure that they go on and leave rounds when I know it's time for them to pump and um, trying to make sure that they have the, the support that they need. Right. And I think I think that um, physician groups, like residency groups, don't think of themselves as being employers, whereas there's the federal law, the uh, workplace uh, break time law that gives employees um, the opportunity to take breaks for breastfeeding. And there's, there aren't any specifics about how long or how often. And I don't think residency groups even think of themselves as being bosses or having to comply with some sort of federal law. I mean, they do for like the number of hours that residents work per week and per 24 hours. But in this situation, I'm not sure that they're aware of it. At least that's what I've come across recently with one resident. So uh, I think I think we need to send that education out to residencies. Um, I don't know how many other specialties how many other professions have this problem? It seems like physicians have it the worst in terms of not being able to get away to pump or being interrupted while pumping and feel that they have no choice but to stop and run out and take care of an emergency. It's not exactly relaxing when your beeper goes off when you're in the middle of pumping. I've had no. experience. Or when you're... And that's not even as a surgical specialty. I can't imagine the people who have a 12-hour surgery case that is not considered, you know, acceptable to leave to go and pump. Right, right. Even though there's always an attending there, there's supposed to be an attending. Um, yeah, I think the support... Yeah, the doctor, I mean, they, they the attending be. could be the breastfeeding mom also. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It just, yeah, the, the the job just doesn't work well. Or if the resident's in charge of um, a service that is like the code, like they're on the code team, you know, where they have to drop everything, and they're nervous yeah. as they're waiting while they're pumping. So, yeah, it's mm-hmm. a it's a definite, definitely a, a difficult situation. And it is. You're right. We if we don't if we don't enable our physicians to be successful, they're not going to pass on their success to their patients. Yeah. Yeah. So, what did you bring? Well, I have a couple things that I wanted to share. One is the updated Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine Clinical Protocol Number 14, which is a revised protocol. It's on the baby, the Breastfeeding Friendly Physicians Office 
optimizing care for infants and children. So the background to this protocol is that healthcare providers absolutely have an influence on mother's prenatal intention to breastfeed, as we talked about in the study that you presented. And we know that ongoing support through phone calls and visits increase the duration of breastfeeding in the office, and that offices that have a trained health professional who is knowledgeable about breastfeeding, uh, they tend to have higher initiation and duration rates of breastfeeding among their patients. So I just wanted to uh, share some of the recommendations from this protocol because it is revised. First of all, they recommend that the office have a breastfeeding policy, not only for how their patients are managed in the office, but also for how the employees who are nursing are treated uh, for their own lactation needs, like how pump breaks are taken and how they cover each other when someone goes off to pump, et cetera. It's also recommended that the office offer culturally sensitive and competent care, which means knowing your population in the office and understanding their issues regarding things like diet, um, populations that don't want to feed colostrum, and those that um, tend to offer early introduction of other drinks and food. If the office has contact with pregnant women, uh, it's important to introduce the subject of infant feeding in the first trimester and then continue those conversations throughout pregnancy, not just drop it after that first or second uh, obligatory conversation. And women should be encouraged um, to be educated on breastfeeding. So things like attending a breastfeeding class and sharing resources like books and websites with uh, with pregnant women is important, especially for women who have special circumstances like women who have had a history of breast surgery. And then when the baby's in the hospital, if the physicians are rounding, they should try to support the baby-friendly steps, such as encouraging mom not to supplement, not to give bottles, encourage her to room in and try to get her to nurse really often, teaching her to identify feeding cues. And I think the big thing is making sure that she understands what happens with engorgement so that on that first day home that she's not blindsided by major engorgement and the baby not being able to latch on. Um, of course, you and I both know that appropriate follow-up after hospital or birth center discharge is important. And this varies in different countries. In the United States, babies are discharged earlier than in other countries. And in the U.S., when babies are discharged on day two, they should usually be seen within 24 hours, especially if they have jaundice or if the babies are not feeding well. Um, in some countries, like Japan, families are staying in the hospital for five or six days. And so in those situations, follow-up can be even a week after discharge if things are going well by the time they leave the hospital. Um, some other um, pointers that they give in the protocol are to make sure the office is comfortable for nursing diets. <clears throat> so to provide a comfortable chair, privacy, a nursing pillow, and access to a knowledgeable person. And then just that whole mantra of addressing breastfeeding issues at those follow-up visits. So making sure that early on moms who have problems such as sore nipples and latch uh, problems should be observed to see how things are going and then making sure that there's a focus on feeding in those early visits, like jaundice, hydration, um, and any other feeding problems, and even starting to talk about going back to work at that point so that moms and families are um, starting to think about all the questions that they might have for their employers. And then make sure, I think what's really important is make sure that mom and the family feel confident about breastfeeding and um, so that 
following them as often as needed until they feel confident and say to you, do I really have to go back so soon? Um, which means that they are feeling really comfortable with how things are going. Yeah, that's always a really good visit when you've been following somebody closely and then you can tell that they're ready to like they don't want to see you for, right they don't want to see you for a month yeah and then um and then during those well child exams continue to provide educational resources like talk about feeding patterns sleep fussiness growth spurts engorgement mastitis and then introduction of foods really focusing on the special needs or the special feeding circumstances that we talk about with uh, breastfed babies particularly high iron solids um breastfeeding in public and, medic- and medication during lactation and emphasize that you're there to advocate for them, for, especially for moms who are facing other medical issues like having to have certain types of x-rays or having to undergo um, certain procedures or medication. And then encourage breastfeeding in the waiting room. So try to promote breastfeeding support by not giving free formula and not having images that would be associated with artificial feeding. And then um, also providing breastfeeding triage tools for the staff so that the staff is knowledgeable and they can answer those questions. Because a lot of, I think a lot of patients, they, want to, they don't want to bother the doctor. They just want to talk to the nurse. But they really don't want advice that would conflict with the things that they've read or um, advice that they, uh, the different advice than, than what they would have gotten from lactation consultants at the local hospital. So those are... Yeah, that's a huge problem in general in lactation that people go and get conflicting advice oh, from multiple providers. And then they oh. feel frustrated and confused. Yeah, I think that, that I think that in itself makes some women throw in the towel. Absolutely. So I thought that was good. I thought, um, you know, for people that don't, who are looking at setting up a, um, a, breast, a breastfeeding friendly office, I think those are generally good tips. Yeah, I, I recently reviewed this also because uh, I'm working with a group in California that's sort of trying to establish um, a much more um, sort of rating system for clinics um, to the baby-friendly um, rating system for hospitals, or certification, I should say. Um, and so we reviewed this and a few other protocols and are trying to sort of turn it into a, a California um, breastfeeding-friendly clinic um, protocol. And we we talked a lot about the importance of having that, that, um, that policy because it all sort of flows from there, having the idea of of the ideal and then working towards it. And we talked a lot about it doesn't mean that your clinic has to have every, it doesn't have to have an expert in lactation in order to be supportive of breastfeeding. You really just have to have um, the support of your staff and the ability to refer and um, not be giving away free formula, things like that. We could all do, we could all be a little, a little more pro-breastfeeding, even if we're not going to have lactation support directly in the office. Yeah, and I think that most offices are not going to afford a lactation consultant in their office. But just even having staff that know how to do triage, there are you know a, a couple of really good triage books out there now for nurses. And um, and I'll make a pitch for my my office nurse breastfeeding champion program that we developed at the UW that I'm hoping to share with people around the country. Um, People can contact me if they're interested, Um, but it's a um, 16 hour training program for nurses uh, so that they understand how to support breastfeeding in the office. And I, and I, boy, I think this is so needed. You know, we just, 
it, it seems oh, like... Oh, yeah, because it's completely different from the inpatient side. Yeah. I think there's been yeah. a lot of training developed for inpatient nurses, and there's been now this big uh, increase in moms initiating, and then the gap to the outpatient support, they're falling off a cliff. So yeah. I'm really yeah. excited about this now. It's It's timely. Yeah, good, good. I just want to share one other article that was published in the Breastfeeding Medicine Journal in April of 2013 called Breastfeeding May Protect from Developing Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. I was just sort of fascinated when I saw the title. I thought, well, we'll just kind of talk about that. And this was, this came from Israel. The first author is Aviva Mamouni Black, and there are several other authors uh, so accompanying her. This group uh, recognizes that breastfeeding has a protective and a positive influence on infants' cognitive development as compared to formula-fed infants, and there was an earlier study that suggested uh, that breastfeeding may be protective from um, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. So they, they had an interesting design of their study. They enrolled parents of kids who were between the ages of 6 and 12 who were diagnosed with attention deficit and hyperactivity disorder, and this was between 2008-2009. And then children with who had underlying neurologic or psychiatric problems like seizures or depression were excluded. And then they had two other control groups. One group had a sibling diagnosed with attention deficit disorder, but the child, him or herself, did not have ADHD. And then they used a control group of kids between 6 and 12 who went to the ear, nose, and throat doctor and just got recruited. And those kids and their families didn't have any ADHD in the family. And so they asked the mothers all sorts of questions about their pregnancy and their own educational, psychosocial, and medical status. And then they did ADHD screens for both the mothers and the fathers. Then they asked all these questions about infant feeding at at certain times in the in the child's life, at one month, two months, three months, six months, and a year. And they found that at every one of those time periods that they collected the infant feeding history, the kids with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder were less likely to have been breastfed as compared to the two control groups. And the reason they had that control group where the children didn't have ADHD, but they had a sibling who did, because they thought that you you could eliminate some of those other psychosocial or genetic factors that are in the family of kids who have ADHD, so you're eliminating some of those other variables. Oh, that's a really neat study design. Yeah, yeah, and you know you don't know for sure if you get it right on the head, but they did say that the mothers whose kids had ADHD, they were older, they were less educated, and they were more likely to be divorced, which, you know, I, adults with ADHD, if it's not controlled, can be, it can be difficult to live with someone who has ADHD. Um, yeah. And you and I both know that when women are less educated, they have lower rates of breastfeeding. So there are some conflicts in the study, and you certainly, we cr- certainly couldn't conclude that breastfeeding is protective or that there's any sort of causal um, relationship between breastfeeding and ADHD. And the one thing I think about in this study is when you think about like the three and four month old who, you know, if a child is really wired for ADHD, which we oftentimes say, well, your kid's born that way. And you think about like a typical three or four month old who's like popping on and off the breast and is interested in everything around them. If that kid is destined to be an ADHD kid, that kid is probably going to wean early 
you know, because the kid is so Yeah, that's an interesting way to look at confounding factors from the child. Right. I thought a lot of it from the, the family situation and you know, the stressors of the home, but that's really interesting. Yeah, when you think about because, you know, you see those kids with ADHD, you know, by the time they're 12 months, 15 months, it's very clear to you that they have, that they're probably going to have hyperactivity disorder. You know, they're just all over the place and they're like chickens mm-hmm. with their heads cut off. Um, so you wonder if that even is something that, it would be interesting to, to watch behavior in those kids at three to four months, just even just even recording how they nurse at three to four months, you know, looking back, but of course you don't know who's going to become ADHD and who doesn't? So, yeah, that would be a long, a, a long, long study, prospective study to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but that's all I have for today. Well, that was really interesting. Yeah, yeah. So, um, I will um, talk to you again in a couple weeks. That sounds great. Talk to you then. Yeah. Bye. 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 If you have any interest in the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine or any questions or comments about this podcast, please email us at abm at b as in boy, f as in frank, med.org. Thanks for listening. We'll see you in a few weeks.